Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. More than half a million people in the UK have agreed to sign up for it though we can't even agree on the right way to say it. Veganuary is a campaign of a non-profit organisation. Not sure if I pronounce Veganuary clearly enough there. And how do you say this? Veganuary. Veganuary. I think that's which, is, which is not January. Veganuary. Veganuary. A campaign begun by a non-profit of the same name to try and get people to give veganism a go for just one month. Here's a question for you. What do uh, Formula One ace Lewis Hamilton, tennis star Venus Williams, former US President Bill Clinton, and uh, the singer Erica Badu all have in common? Well, they've embraced veganism. Veganism might once have been on the unserved countercultural fringe, but today, walk into any supermarket and there's a cornucopia of vegan products. This is a fake prawn. It's fried, we've got sweet chilli sauce. What can go wrong? It's not bad. No, I'm fine with that. I am fine with that. You don't taste anything like prawn. It tastes... no. Well... Veganism has moved from eccentric fad to a mainstream diet. But with even fast food chains jumping on the bandwagon, you have to ask, is all of this healthy? And when did what we eat become such a bone of contention? I guess you might want to say there's some vegan in your life, but I'm just talking to three of my kids as vegans. You can eat all the tofu, egg, plant, and wood chips you want. But stop coming to my house talking down to me because I eat meat. I don't want to hear it. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Veganuary, the myths, the science, and the future of food. I'm Sarah Berry. I'm a nutritional scientist at King's College London. I'm also the lead nutritionist of Zoe, which is a personalised nutrition startup tech company. I'm fascinated by how complex our bodies are. I'm fascinated how we can change our health through our diet, through our physical activity, through many modifiable factors. And I think as um, I was doing my undergraduate degree in physiology, I started to become more and more aware of just how important our diet is in shaping our overall health. And you didn't get into nutrition at all because your name was Berry? 
No, and no one's ever asked me that before either. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'm the only person childish yep. enough for you to have, met, to have noticed that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. Now, let's talk a bit at the moment about your perceptions of the rise of veganism. As far as you can tell from the work that you're doing, how popular is veganism in the UK now? And how much have you seen it grow? So it's growing enormously. I mean, over the last four to five years, it's grown four to five fold. So uh, I think a really nice way of illustrating the popularity of veganism is by thinking about veganuary. Vegans, so superior. And who wouldn't want to feel superior? Be superior this January, don't eat meat, or I will hurt you. There are two main reasons you should go vegan. Number one, geezer butler from Black Sabbath has been vegan since the 60s, fact. And number two, the Cockney rhyming slang for vegan is Kevin Keegan, so you get to enjoy that. This started back in 2015 and they had originally 12,500 people that signed up for it. But last year there was half a million people. And so that shows over again just the last five years how it's growing in popularity. People thinking about whether it's animal welfare, planetary health or their own biological health. And now in the UK again over the last four to five years it's grown by about four or five fold. And actually in the UK we're really leading the way in terms of the popularity of, of vegan and vegetarian diets are we that's that seems strange because you tend to think about the british as conservative in this respect and it turns out that for this we're not yeah, I mean, there's some countries where culturally veganism or vegetarianism is part of their culture. So in India, for example, there's huge proportions of people that follow a vegan diet. But in terms of Western diets, so in the UK, in the US, the UK is really leading the way in terms of the proportion of people that, that are vegan. Does it surprise you at all that veganism has become so popular so quickly? I don't think so. I think given that we're becoming aware not just of planetary health, but how what we eat impacts our long-term health, I think it's really at the forefront of people's mind about choosing the best diet for the planet, but also the best diet for them. And the communication about the healthiness of food is something that, again, over the last 10 to 15 years is increasing. You know, every day you pick up a newspaper and it's got a different headline about, you know, how one food is healthier than another food or one diet's better for you than another diet. Yeah, I've always thought that must really annoy a nutritionist, actually. <laughs> Well, do you know what annoys me the most is that nutrition is a rapidly expanding area of research and unfortunately it's very complex as well and so the media often try and really simplify, you know, some very complex science. Food contains thousands of chemicals that are packaged within a really complex matrix, so a really complex structure. And so, for example, you know, saturated fats, we know when it's from processed meats or, or meat-based products, we know that it has an unfavorable effect on our health. But if you have saturated fat from dairy or plant-based products, they tend to have a favourable effect on our health. And so you could have a headline in a newspaper that says, oh, saturated fat's bad for you. Yes, on a whole, on average, saturated fat's not good for us. But then you could have a headline the next week saying, scientists have got it wrong, saturated fat's actually good for you. Well, yes, if it's in cheese or if it's in plant-based, some plant-based foods, it is. And that's what's really frustrating. That must make you a very interesting dinner party guest as you peer at the plate next and somebody says to you, you're in nutrition, is this any good for me? 
Well, I don't tell most people I'm a nutritional scientist and those that know me well know that I actually have an incredibly balanced and relaxed view. And you'll actually find most nutritional scientists have a balanced, quite normal diet. So I must say I don't follow a particularly healthy diet. And I think that's because I recognize that, you know, a little bit of what's bad for you can be good for you. But also food is so tied up with, you know, social, cultural and emotional well-being that I think that, you know, we need to be careful not to get too hung up on the health impacts of food. And yes, we should consider the health impacts. But actually, we need to think about, do we enjoy that? Does it fit in with, you know, the the things that bring me pleasure? So I I take it from what you said, that actually, you aren't a vegetarian or a vegan or but neither are you some kind of gigantic meat eater. In other words, you're a sort of moderation person. I am a moderation person in most areas of my life, (laughs) including what I eat. And, you know, my my biggest thing is, is I eat for pleasure. I eat what I enjoy. So I eat when I want, how I want and what I want, but within reason. And that's because, yes, you know, occasionally I do like a McDonald's and I do like chocolate and I do like crisps, but actually I don't want to eat them all the time. And so because of that, I never deny myself any food. And I think that's the worst thing that you can do is by denying it, you want it more, you crave it more and you become fixated. And I really believe that if we can just have a more balanced and healthy relationship with food, then I think that most people would self-select reasonably healthy food most of the time anyway. Now, let's talk about what it is that nutritionists can usefully say about one general type of diet versus another. Nutritionally, are there drawbacks to a strictly vegan diet? Okay, so I think the first thing really to bear in mind is that we all respond differently to the same food. So this whole idea of a one-size-fits-all approach to a healthy diet really no longer holds true. Now, in terms of a, a vegan diet, obviously, you're removing whole food groups from your diet. So you've got to be mindful of, with removing foods, what are you going to replace it with? So you need to think about ensuring that you still get the correct nutrients that you need to flourish, but that also that you're not replacing, for example, meat with processed plant-based foods. Right. Let's talk about that specific thing now. You hear the phrase processed food an awful lot, and we've all got used to the notion that unprocessed food is good and processed food is bad. Take us through that. What exactly is processing food? I think we need to be a bit cautious in thinking all processed food is bad because processing of food does play an important role in allowing us to consume a diverse diet. But it's the ultra-processed foods that we must really watch out for. A really good way, I think, of showing how just changing the structure of a food, which we call the food matrix, can change how a food is processed by our body, is using an example of, let's say, if you were to take nuts, any kind of nuts, and you were to consume them whole, what happens is, is although you chew them and you break up a little bit of the structure of the nut, the cells of nuts are tiny. So what happens is, is most of the cell walls are intact and it's within these cell walls that the fat from the nuts is contained. And so about 20 to 30% of the fat is actually undigested, reaches 
our large gut, our colon, where firstly it provides a wonderful feast of food for our microbiome, which we know is really important in terms of our health, but also we excrete a lot of this fat. Now, what we could do is we could take exactly the same nuts, we could grind them up, as is often happens when you're processing a food, you're disrupting the physical structure of the food, we might want to add it to something else. But if we were just to grind up those nuts and consume them ground, so that if you were to look at the back of pep labeling, they're exactly the same nutritionally to the whole nuts that I've just eaten. What happens is all those cell walls are broken down. So all the fat is released. And so you absorb all of the fat. So you change quite enormously the calorie value of the nuts. And yet, if I was to buy those ground almonds in a supermarket or the whole nuts, the back of pack labeling would say exactly the same thing. So you just wouldn't know. And it's also the case, isn't it, that quite a lot of new types of dishes prepared for vegetarians and vegans do contain exactly that. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think a big problem and something we need to look out for, and this isn't just for vegans and vegetarians, is the claim that I think a lot of food manufacturers are using, you know, that this is plant-based, this is natural, where actually, yes, it's plant-based, but just because it's plant-based doesn't mean that it's natural, doesn't mean that it's healthy for us. And there's a lot of plant-based milks that are out there and, again, are marketed as being this healthy, wonderful alternative to dairy-based milk. So if you take oat-based milks, a lot of the oat-based milks that are on the market, the original structure of the oats is totally destroyed. A lot of the fibres are removed. You have rapeseed oil and other chemicals added back in. And so in my opinion, if we're thinking about it from a health perspective, the dairy-based milk is a lot better for us than some of these processed plant-based milks. But I think what it does allow, though, is it does allow people choice. And I think that's really important because I think that for people that are transitioning from a meat-based diet to a vegan diet, Diet. it is challenging or it was challenging 10 years ago and having increased options makes that transition easier and does give people a choice of these alternatives and particularly people that are doing it not necessarily for health reasons but for planetary health or animal welfare reasons that's very interesting because that fits with what you were saying earlier which is you don't look down upon the product or the people who have the product if it's a bit of what they do just as you wouldn't look down on people who were having it as a bit of what they did in a non-vegan or non-vegetarian diet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what we eat is, it, it can be so contentious and what we eat and what we choose to eat is so ingrained in in our culture, in our society. And it's the one thing that everyone does. Everyone eats food. And so I think this is why there is a lot of controversy over the healthiness of different diets, a lot of contention over between groups of people following one diet versus another, and why sometimes there can be very inflammatory opinions as well about this. And I think that, you know, we have to respect that everyone makes their own choices about what they eat for various reasons. And the, the reasons that we choose, the food that we choose, is often due to so many different factors. Coming up, we get into those many different factors, diving into the history of veganism and how it might shape our future. 
I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture, and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views, and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My name is Tim Lang. I'm Professor Emeritus of Food Policy at the Centre for Food Policy at City University of London. As a PhD student in 1971, I became a vegetarian, having read the data about, or the early data now, on food systems' impact on the environment. Less so influenced by health, actually, more environment. Let's talk a little bit about food history in the UK, particularly meat history. Now, just how much meat do we eat in the UK at the moment? There's a very large amount of meat eaten in Britain. It, it, meat everywhere, not just in Britain, rises with incomes, basically. Meat is a, an indicator, actually, of wealth, with some very important exceptions, India being the primary one where religion trumps economics. But broadly, meat consumption rose dramatically as Britain became richer post-Second World War, but is now gently declining. Let's talk about the pushback, if, if that's the right word. We're thoroughly meatified, and now we have a momentum building up in the other direction. Can you take us a little bit through the history in this country of the development of vegetarianism and then veganism? Well, actually, I'll go further, if I may. I mean, vegetarianism is very old. Come on, you know, Greek philosophers were vegetarians and overtly and articulately said, why not to eat meat and, and the advantages of not eating meat. So vegetarianism is not new at all. Veganism 
it's slightly more modern. The word vegan is only coined in the 1940s, and it comes as a split from the formal vegetarian society, which was created in the 19th century in this country. But you have to go back, really, the driver in Britain, I always remind people, is not the health arguments, but actually it was animal welfare arguments. You've got to remember in Britain, what's now the Royal Society for Prevention of Cruelty to the Animals, the RSPCA, begins in the early 19th century, uh, well before what we now think of as a parallel body, the National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Indeed, it was the RSPCA, animal welfareists, genuinely embarrassed and philosophically embarrassed uh, at the lack of concern in Victorian society for child cruelty, they created the NSPCC, what's now the NSPCC. I did not so know that. Animal, animal welfare has been a consistent and very powerful driver. That's very interesting. Do we have uh, an idea about the reasons why people uh, increasingly turn to vegan food uh, and whether those reasons have changed from the reasons why people might have done it, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago? I think the reasons for it, the prime reasons about animal welfare and health have been consistent and are still very powerful motives. But there is another factor which is modern and really emerges in the last 30, 40 years, which is a disgust for um, factory farming. We essentially imported immediately post-Second World War American intensive poultry production. There is now an argument going on and some considerable fear among animal welfare support organizations that we're about to start importing North American what they call CAFOs, concentrated animal food operations, sort of intensive, huge feeding lots. Now, that is industrialization, or some call it factory farming. It's treating the animal essentially as a throughput object that you get them to live as short a life as possible and pour food down their throats, but to, you choose the animal to try and reduce the amount of time that you have to feed it. A grass-fed, outdoor-reared beef calf uh, will take far longer to get to the state where uh, the butchers will accept it to be killed than if you keep it indoors and feed it corn or wheat. So there's a very big argument going on about meat, and that's a very critical argument today in public policy. And then there is a second new argument, which is the environmental footprint, is the best way to put it, that we now, I mean, I myself spent four years on the hugely important, widely cited Eat Lancet Commission, when we were thrown the problem, can we feed 9 billion people or 10 billion people by 2050 healthily and well without destroying ecosystems? And the answer is yes. Our calculations were there would be enough food to feed people, but only if there's a dramatic reduction in meat consumption. It has to go down by 50% and fruit and, and vegetable production has to increase dramatically. We know it should, those should increase dramatically anyway, because they're good. Even if you're a meat eater, it's very important for public health reasons to eat lots of fruit and vegetables, but also to eat nuts and seeds. Our calculations were that nuts and seeds 
need to grow by 150%. That becomes an issue, David, of land use. And that's a relatively new argument. Your footprint, your impact on land use, water, dramatically drops if you stop eating animals. Now, when I was younger, vegetarians were, uh, let alone vegans, were, to a certain extent, ridiculed. I mean, Orwell has this famous line about oddballs and vegetarians. Uh, As you look at it, do you think that those perceptions have now changed? I think they have changed. This was Orwell's jibe at the sort of the generation of Bohemian, Bloomsbury, George Bernard Shaw type articulate vegetarians associated with sort of left wing, well off people able to have choices. And it was very easy to parody. And to some extent, in, in Orwell's case, he parodied it as the contrast to the brutal and very choice restricted lives. Uh, that he experienced. That argument, I think, has been dissipated. Veganism is much more acceptable. You can parody it as being about sort of actresses and models and the glitterati, but it doesn't have the same venom as Orwell could give it. So to that extent, I think you're absolutely right. The critique of veganism has softened. It has been normalized, actually. Now, um, linked to that, and you talked about earlier about the level of fall in meat eating in the UK. And so I suppose the question is, would you now anticipate that the trend will keep, that trend will keep going and at roughly the same trajectory or perhaps even greater? I think it is. I think it's here to stay already. And indeed, I see this as a sign that it's here to stay. The the critique of veganism is changing. There is sort of vegan porn, um, not literally pornography. Well, maybe there is, but I don't know about that. But, uh, <laughs> you may just have invented it. <laughs> maybe. Um, but, you know, industrial factory made products that frankly market themselves as, as vegan, maybe just past the laugh test. But the desperate desire of industrial capitalism to to seek new markets and to create new niche markets, always desperate to try and create new value-adding opportunities. Veganism is showing a sign of its consolidation within food culture by those sort of products emerging, actually. I'm here at McDonald's HQ, and I'm going to go and check out one of their new burgers. I'm here with Lindsay. Please tell me about the new McFlan burger. So we have a vegan bun, a mustard, a ketchup, a vegan sandwich sauce, onion, pickle, lettuce, tomato, vegan cheese. And then we have a plant protein patty, which is co-developed with Beyond Meat. Oh, I love Beyond Meat. So I see it as a backhanded compliment, actually. I don't think it's going to go away. The arguments are so powerful and so solid and so endlessly confirmed about the impact of food systems on climate, on water, on land use, on the seas, and on human health, that those arguments just don't go away. It was very interesting when Britain chaired the COP26, the uh, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change talks in Glasgow in the back end of last year. It was very interesting that food's impact on climate change was ducked. And yet it accounts for 
25, it depends which framework you look at, but a huge proportion of human-derived greenhouse gas emissions. Food accounts for a huge amount of it. And yet governments, not just our government, which was in charge of the talks or chairing the talks, um, but governments worldwide are terribly frightened of facing their populations. And yet when you go and look at populations, they're increasingly concerned about climate change, saying, what can we do? Well, one of the big, big, relatively quick ways rich countries can start lowering their carbon footprint is by changing their diets. So Britain, our policy leaves a lot to be desired at the moment, David, if I may say so. But this year is actually very important because we'll see whether there is a white paper on food coming for England. We'll see whether Britain will get a grip of uh, the handover to COP27 and really address sustainable consumption. But pressure is building up, may I say, not least from big food companies and very big environmental organizations and big public health organizations who just are frankly shocked by how little attention there was on altering the British diet as a quick, quick route to lowering our carbon footprint. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, King's College nutritional scientist Sarah Barry and City University Professor Emeritus of Food Policy, Tim Lang. Today's producers were Taryn Siegel and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to times at thetimes.co.uk. See you next week.